This is the second Sunday of Advent. For our text, we actually have three different passages, and so if you want to open to them and stick your finger in there, uh, Isaiah 40, then Malachi 4, and then Mark chapter 1. So Isaiah 40, Malachi 4, and Mark chapter 1. So I said, this is the second Sunday of Advent. These are the four Sundays prior to Christmas. But what many do not know is this, these, this is the beginning of the Christian calendar. The Christian calendar doesn't begin January 1st. It begins with the first Sunday of Advent. And this year, providentially, it comes at, right in the midst of our study of First John. Specifically, as John elaborates on the test, because there are false teachers, there are antichrists who have come in, and how do you know if they're false teachers? And for the believers, this will come up later in the book, how do I know if I'm a believer? Because the things that John is saying could kind of be true about me. So he gives three tests. The moral test, that is obedience. The social test, that is love. And then finally, the doctrinal test, that is belief in, belief in Christ. And he begins by fleshing out the first test, that is obedience, which he locates, and this is important, not chronologically, but theologically, because he puts them between the two advents. He begins with the second coming of Christ, not the incarnation, the second coming of Christ, and then he talks about the incarnation. By the way, it's, it's, I think it's helpful that he does this, that we see, oh, he's not doing chronology, so that when earlier he says it is the last hour, we know that he's making a theological statement as opposed to a chronological one. So, he tells us that in fact the second coming, which will in fact define all of reality, we need to continue to live lives of, obedient that, of obe- obedience so that we will be confident and unashamed. And then when talking about the incarnation, the purpose of Christ's coming was to take away sin and to destroy the work of the devil. What John is saying is it is completely incompatible for us to continue to sin when we think of the second coming in which we will have to give an account and we don't want to be ashamed and the fact that Jesus came in the first place to take away sin and to destroy the work of the devil. So the church lives between the two advents. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus which means the coming or arrival Usually people think of it as the four Sundays before Christmas because Christmas is coming, we think of the birth of Jesus. But also it points to his second coming. And traditionally the church has focused more on the second coming than the incarnation. One cannot be surprised though that in the 20th century the focus is suddenly on Christmas and all the things that come with that and we tend to forget about the second coming. The reality is Jesus has come And Jesus will come. We live in the time between. We are in the already but not yet. There's a tension. We have been saved, but we are being saved and finally will be saved when Jesus returns. So there's a tension. We struggle with sin. And why is it? That's what Advent is all about. I think it really spells out the tension that Christians face. 
John said at the beginning of his book that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And at the beginning, in his prologue of his gospel, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. I asked the question last week, if that's true, then why is there so much darkness in the world? I think this may be the question of Advent. Where is God? As I said last week, um, it seems statistically, the numbers are that 11 Christians die every day for their faith. Right now. We're not talking about ancient Rome. We're talking about right now. 11 Christians are murdered for their faith. Where is God? If God is light, then why is there so much darkness? So as we saw last week, the first Sunday of Advent, Advent begins in darkness. Cannot lose sight of that. Peter wrote in his second epistle, first of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. As I said last week, I'm not sure we need scoffers to ask this question. Where is the coming he promised? It's been close to 2,000 years, and yet Jesus has not returned. I think this may be why we focus more on Christmas than we do on the second coming. Um, It's a lot more joyful, so we imagine. But also, I think we are fearful that what Isaiah wrote is true. When he says, truly you are a God who hides himself. Here we are God's people, and yet it seems that God has hidden himself. Some would say, David, I don't agree that this is a period of darkness before the second advent. Some would say, consider the following. Almost 30% of the world's population is designated as Christian. One in three. Consider the number of church, churches and church buildings. And some of them are magnificent, others not so. The number of parachurch organizations seeking to help different segments of society. Hospitals seeking to heal the sick. Charities seeking to help those in need, and so on. One would say we're pushing back against the darkness. But I would suggest, if not insist, that Advent begins in darkness, and that the church lives in Advent. To learn how we are to do this, I think we should look at the key figure, the key figure of the first advent. That is John the Baptist. In those who follow a liturgical calendar, of the four Sundays of Advent, two of them are about John the Baptist. The second and the third Sunday of Advent are about John the Baptist. This is an individual who is mentioned more times in non-biblical literature then is Jesus of Nazareth. We have more non-biblical references to John the Baptist and other literature. It's a major figure in the first century of Judea. We know from Luke chapter 1 that he was a child of an elderly couple who had not had any children, Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was at least six months older than Jesus because Mary, after Gabriel appeared to her, went to Elizabeth and Elizabeth was six months pregnant at that point. Well, what was the world like 
the world into which John was born. What were the circumstances of the first advent? A brief timeline, a brief history lesson. In 722, Israel, the ten tribes to the north, were taken into the Assyrian captivity, um, and they did not return. In 582-581, Judah, the two tribes to the south, were taken into captivity into Babylon. They do return. Uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, allows them to return in 538. In the year around 400 B.C., the book of Malachi is written. It is the last book of the Old Testament. And so there is a period of time between Malachi and Matthew, or the Gospels, which have come to be known as the 400 silent years. 400 years in which there is no prophet, there is no word from the Lord. Let me just say parenthetically, there's some people who disagree with this, because we have the apocryphal literature that comes about during this time. We have the miracle of Hanukkah, which happens during this time period. And some would say it was not the silent period. But consider politically, it was a dark time. After they return from exile, the Jews are still under foreign power. They're under the Persians. Cyrus lets them go home, but he's still their king. And then the Persian Empire is destroyed. They're conquered in 331. Alexander the Great takes over. He dies at a very early age, and then his empire is split up among four of his generals. And from 320 to 168, Israel or Judah is under either the Seleucids to the, the east or the Ptolemies who are in Egypt. There is a brief period of time that begins around 166 in which the Maccabees revolt because Antiochus Epiphanes, this horrible person, desecrated the temple. There is a rebellion, there is a revolt. And for almost a hundred years, the Jews seem to be quasi-independent, but they're actually still under the Seleucid, so they're not really free. In 63 BC, Rome comes in and takes over, and this is who is in charge when John the Baptist appears on the scene. Politically, it's a dark time. Religiously, people would say, not so dark. They would argue that it is not. One of the amazing things is, from the time of the captivity, Babylonian captivity on, there is no idolatry found among the Jews. They learned their lesson. It took captivity, it took exile, but you do not find any type of idolatry, that is, you know, physical idolatry among the Jews from that time on. So that seems like a plus. The synagogue emerges during the captivity as the focal point of worship in part because they're in Babylon, they're no longer back in Judah, and there's no more temple. So they gather every Sabbath in the synagogues to worship God. The reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, become part of that worship. So now the Jews become more familiar with the books of Moses. It is during this time that the format of worship is established. So you have singing of the Psalms, prayer, and then some exposition on the text that has been read. This becomes the pattern for the Christian church when it emerges in the first century AD.
The Sanhedrin is created. You have this religious judicial body that is created. The Old Testament is translated into Greek, the Septuagint during this time. So now the books of what we call the Old Testament are not only in Hebrew, they are now available to the general public because they are in Greek. And this brings up another important point. When Alexander um, conquered the Mediterranean basin, he brought in Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. He brought in the Greek language and it became the lingua franca. That's what everyone spoke. And the word of God is translated into this language, into Koine Greek. By the way, the word synagogue actually comes from a Greek word. Assembly, synagogi. Um, so it has sort of a unifying, it, it makes it possible for the word of God to be spread across the Mediterranean basin. Two of the greatest rabbis in Jewish tradition lived during this time, Hillel and Shammai. And if you go to most universities, there is a Hillel house. And that is sort of an outreach ministry uh, of the Jews. The Pharisees and the Sadducees emerged during this time. The, the Sadducees are the priests, so obviously they focus on the temple, which is beginning to be rebuilt. The Pharisees focus on the law. And when Rome finally comes in and destroys the temple in 70 AD, they destroy the Sadducees, and it is the Pharisees who survive. And what we have today as Judaism comes from those rabbis, the Pharisaic rabbis. So one would argue politically it's dark, religiously not so. But what does scripture say? How does the scripture refer to this point of uh, time? There are at least two passages that are mentioned by the gospel writers. One in particular, it's mentioned by all four. It's from Isaiah chapter 40. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at that. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse number 3. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a familiar passage the voice of one calling in the wilderness. But there's another passage, and this is the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. These are the closing words, if you wish, not only on the Old Testament and on Malachi, but the closing words for four centuries. Okay? Malachi 4, it's, uh, let me read six verses, it's a short chapter. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do those, these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts 
of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. I will strike the land with a curse. These are the last words Israel hears from God in the Old Testament. In this last part of Malachi, which we studied some time ago, there is a call to take inventory. Three questions are put forward to God's people. Is it vain to serve the Lord? Is there no difference between the wicked and the righteous? Are there no guides for righteousness? How do we know how we're supposed to live our lives? The Jews would have 400 years to think about these questions. 400 years before the word of the Lord would be heard again. And what is the word? What is the message that John the Baptist preaches? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. By the way, did you notice in Malachi that two figures are mentioned? Moses. Moses gave the law at Horeb. And Elijah. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, who are the two men who appear with Jesus? It's Moses and Elijah. So, what was John's story? Now we go to Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey, and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandal, sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Three things to consider about this key figure in the first advent. First of all, his person. When you think about it, isn't it strange that Mark tells us what John wore and what he ate? I can't think of any other New Testament figure that we're told this about. Um, why are we given a description of his attire and his diet? Well, it is worth noting that in Second Kings chapter 1, we are told of an incident in which the king of Israel falls and he doesn't know if he's going to survive. So he sends his servants to the priest of Baal to find out, am I going to live? They're confronted by Elijah, the prophet, the guy mentioned in Malachi. And Elijah says, what? We have no prophets of God. You have to go to a false god to find out? Here, go back and tell him he's going to die. So they go back and the king is sort of surprised because they're, he thought it would take longer than it did. And they tell him the story. You know, this guy accosted us and he told us this stuff. And he asked them, what does he look like? What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. 
The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. So we have John, in a sense, mirroring what we find of Elijah. Here he is in the wilderness, and he's wearing rather strange attire. In John, we find a familiar image from the Old Testament. And yet, I think the picture that we have, the picture we come away with, is that he was a rather strange individual. One writer put it this way, After 2,000 years, he still stands there, irreducibly strange, gaunt, and unruly, lonely and refractory, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. Even Elijah is positively lovable and cuddly in comparison. John's character, however, is not the primary focus. Though his person is remarkable by any standard, it is not his person that marks him. It is his location. More on this in a bit. One aspect of his character comes through. Actually, there are two. The first is there is a fearlessness about him. He sees himself as the one who has come before to announce the coming of the Messiah. And he is fearless in what he does. He is single-minded. He's not afraid of man. He tells Herod, you should not have your brother's wife. He's not afraid of woman. Herodias ultimately has his head cut off. But John tells them what is what. He tells them that what they are doing is wrong. He refers to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as a brood of vipers. A family of vipers. As much as to say, you guys come from a long line of snakes going back to Eden. Take some guts to do that. This man would be called a firebrand. Someone who is radical in his commitment to his calling. And yet, and yet this man is utterly submissive to the one who's coming after him. He preaches what we would call hell, fire, and brimstone. And yet he says, listen, someone's coming after me. I'm, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to bow before him and tie the thongs on his sandals. John saw his calling as to be a witness, not to point to himself, but to point to the one who's coming after him. And in this, he is a model for us all during Advent season and throughout the year. There is his person. Secondly, there is his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. For many people, if not most, to repent means to say you're sorry. And I, I, I won't brush that aside and say that's not a part of it. But it's only a part of what it means to repent. John's baptism was for the repentance, uh, for the forgiveness of sins. So what is repentance? By the way, just parenthetically, uh, Jews never got baptized. Okay? Baptism was for Gentiles who wanted to join the Jewish faith. So what John is saying basically is you guys are as bad as Gentiles. You need to repent. And this is a sign of your repentance. And what is repentance? Well, what I read from Isaiah. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. 
This is the message of repentance, a radical reordering of reality. And it's not easy. Repentance is not easy. It's not just saying, my bad, I'm sorry. It requires a restructuring of our lives. The image that Isaiah employs is that of the geography of a place. So you have a valley, you fill it in. That's a lot of work. You have a mountain or a hill, you bring it down. That's a lot of work. You have a rough place, you make it level. You have rugged places, you make them smooth. In other words, it is a whole different way of being. And in this, we need to acknowledge that repentance is for the strong. Some are afraid if I repent, I I will sort of lose a a sense of self-esteem. I have to say I'm nothing, I'm I'm trash, I'm dirt. Um, Repentance is saying I have done wrong. And there is the commitment to follow Christ, a reordering of your life. There are those who are insecure and perhaps out of fear. They're unable to say, I will change. Rather, they choose to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And keep saying it to the point where it basically becomes meaningless. The message of Advent is not look at your neighbor, look at the person across the street. It is look at yourself and repent. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, and I think Ecclesiastes was written after the exile, says there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And then we saw last week in Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It becomes clear as John preaches the message of repentance that every human being needs to repent. All we like sheep have gone astray. The message is repent. Uh, when we went through the series on evil, I mentioned this, that Alexander, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was in prison in the Gulag in the Soviet Union, uh, when he was able to go back, he visited the people, he greeted the people, even those who had put him in the Gulag. And his friends, his supporters, were rather offended by this. How dare you talk to these horrible, horrible people? And Solzhenitsyn's response was, the line between good and evil is not like between us and them. It goes right down us. We all need to repent. The people that John preached to saw themselves as the people of the promise. They're waiting for the promises. And John's like, yeah, no, you guys are the problem. You need to repent and change your ways. The famous story is told that the London Times, back at the turn of the 20th century, uh, sent out uh, a letter to various intellectuals in Great Britain and the UK. And to ask them, what do you think is the problem with the world? 
The world seems to be a mess. What do you think the problem is? They sent one to G.K. Chesterton. And he sent back a postcard. Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are the problem. We need to repent. That is the message of John. I said there are three things to consider about John. His person, his message. The third is his location. And by this, I don't mean where he baptized. Though it is significant. He's out in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah. The Jews have this ancient memory of the time in the wilderness and then coming across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I'm talking about is where he was chronologically. He is right before Advent. He is, as in a sense, pushing back against the darkness and proclaiming the message that the Messiah has come. You need to prepare your way. Prepare the way. Prepare your hearts. John's location is at the frontier of Advent. He's there on the front lines as God arrives in the world in the person of Jesus to turn it from its past of sin and bondage toward a future of promise and freedom. John came to deliver, to announce the message that the Son of God is about to invade humanity. The Son of God is about to invade this world. And as he said in Matthew 3, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John is right there where two forces are going to collide. That of darkness, that of sin, that of the devil, and that of God sending his son. In this way, I would argue that John is our contemporary He had one concern and one concern only, as should we. To bring one another and the world to the person of Jesus Christ. We deserve condemnation. He gave us mercy. We were slaves to sin. He gave himself that we might have freedom. He is making us into his image and likeness. We're on the battle line, the front line. And so during this time of Advent, we must confess and affirm Jesus has come. That's what Christmas is all about. But Jesus will come, the second Advent. Like John the Baptist, the season of Advent is really peculiar. It's out of phase with the times. It really doesn't seem to fit. One writer put it this way, Advent encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat out of sorts with its stubborn resistance to anything remotely resembling the season of shopping and decorating and wrapping and partying. If we understand our location, as we understand John's location, then we will in fact understand Advent And if we understand Advent, then we will understand what it means to be a Christian. There were three questions put to God's people at the end of Malachi. Is it vain to serve the Lord? Is there no difference between the wicked and the righteous? 
And are there no guides for righteousness? As I said, the Jews had 400 years to ponder these questions before the word of the Lord would be heard again. We've had 2,000 years. We should hear the call to repentance. Just a side note, and this is something I should have said last week and perhaps earlier in the sermon. Um, I was raised in a tradition in which there was a lot of emphasis on the second coming, almost to the point where I didn't want to hear any more about the second coming. Um, But you find this throughout church history. People think that the Lord is going to return at any moment. And why do they think that? Because we're on the front line. There's darkness in the world and God has put us here. We are to be light in this dark time. And so when things get tough, yeah, it's nice to talk about the second coming, that the Lord will come back and deliver us. By the way, think in your mind. Think of two individuals. One who has terminal cancer and who is suffering greatly. And the other one who's on the verge of some great event in his or her life. Perhaps getting married, graduating from college. Of these two people, who do you think is looking forward to the second coming? The Lord is coming back. And he will come back in the midst of things. Okay? But as God's people, we need to understand we are to be like John the Baptist. Out of phase, out of sync. Saying to the world, you need to repent. I need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And the season of Advent gives us the opportunity to examine our hearts, examine our lives, and turn once again in faith to Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the person of John who seemingly had a short ministry ended up having his head cut off. But he was your messenger. He preached your word before the coming of the Messiah. He was there to prepare people for the invasion that was to follow him. The coming of Jesus into the world. During this time of the year, we are more focused on Christmas. It is a time of joy when we remember that you in fact did send your son. Though I suspect we think of it more of as a gift than an invasion. But one day Jesus will come back. In the meantime, we are the frontline troops. We are there standing as there's a collision between the rule of God and the rule of this world. A world in which we are to live lives of obedience 
and in which there are many antichrists. By your grace, may we have the courage of John the Baptist. And by your grace, may we live lives of love that show the world who you are. May we take these words to heart, examine our hearts, and once again rediscover the place of repentance. And remember that Jesus has come and that Jesus will come. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Keep us safe as we travel in the rain that's come upon us. Keep us through this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.